All right. Well, this morning we'll take a brief look at the book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel, recall he's one of the major prophets, so along with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, he's the one that wrote one of the long books. And uh, this book is 48 chapters, so there's a lot going on in there. Not quite as long as Jeremiah, but long enough. Yeah, long enough. Uh, so Ezekiel, just a little bit of, of background, Ezekiel was a priest who was carried away into exile into Babylon in 597, or five, yeah, 597 BC. So this was the first of three waves of the Babylonians carrying off the southern kingdom, Judah, into exile. So the first one, Ezekiel gets carried uh, away with the, the king at the time, and then there'll be a couple more until... Finally, Babylon destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and does all of that in 586 B.C. So this 11-year period of siege that Jerusalem in particular was under. And so um, it's while Ezekiel is in exile that the Lord calls him to be a prophet. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the significance of that here in a minute. Um, and if you think about the time frame... Ezekiel was prophesying at a similar time as Jeremiah, so their prophetic ministries overlap. But Jeremiah was prophesying from Jerusalem. He's, he's still there in Jerusalem, while on the other hand, Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon. <clears throat> but they overlap. And so Ezekiel's ministry spanned about 20 years. And during the time that he was prophesying, Jerusalem is destroyed. So uh, that becomes really a, a focal event in his prophecy. And so we'll see how that plays out. Um, and so that really kind of gets us to the central theme of Ezekiel. So you can see it there on your handout. And it is that the old covenant has failed, not because God is unfaithful, but because the people were not able to keep it due to their sinful hearts. Therefore, a new covenant is needed which will involve new hearts for the people of God. So that's how we're, we're going to see this play out in Ezekiel's prophecy in this book. And really it breaks down into two parts. So the first part is chapters 1 through 24, and it tells us really why Jerusalem is facing impending judgment. So there's a, be a lot of what we call forth-telling, right? When we think back when we first started looking at prophecy, there's forth-telling, which is really God speaking into the current events and proclaiming what needs to be said about what's currently going on. And then there's forth-telling, that's that looking towards the future. And so both of these are represented really in, in Ezekiel. And the first part, the first 24 chapters, are more of this forth-telling, um, telling what God has to say about current circumstances. And, and it's all about this judgment that Jerusalem is about to face. And then the second part of the book, verses, or chapters 25 to 48, is more of the foretelling, looking towards the future. And it, it will give these exiles hope, and there will be promises for the future that, that get put forth in this part of the book. So uh, let's, let's jump in, and let's see, uh, really, if we can get our minds wrapped around this book of Ezekiel. There's a lot of things in here that are hard to understand, and we won't have time to really dig down into all of the, the nuances 
but there's this great overall theme that I think we'll really be able to, to pull out as we look through it. <clears throat> so turn uh, to chapter 1 of Ezekiel, and let me read the first three verses. And as we read these three verses, look to see what we can learn about the prophet Ezekiel and about his time frame just from these verses. And, and we'll just kind of uh, discuss that a little bit, see what we can understand about him. So uh, Ezekiel 1, starting in verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Shebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Shebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So there's the introduction. Um, and this is what we kind of learn about Ezekiel. And so, what can we learn? You just read these verses. What do we learn about Ezekiel just from these three verses? Yeah. So we can determine just from looking at these dates exactly when this happened. So this is, like Ray says, this is historical. And he says there in uh, verse 2, uh, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. So we know from history that that corresponds to 593 B.C. So this prophecy came to Ezekiel originally in 593 B.C., which was four years after he had been carried into exile. So yeah. That's it's good to know. That kind of dates us and, and uh, ties us down to, to history. What else do we see in here? Okay, Ezekiel is a priest. So this is interesting. So he's a priest. And, and think about the priestly duties. They are, were all tied to the temple in Jerusalem, right? So what does it mean to be a priest in exile. Is he going to be able to perform his priestly duties? No. He can't, right? So uh, this, this concept of exile would have been particularly real to Ezekiel because as a priest, he was completely prohibited from doing the thing that he had been trained and called and, and born to do. Uh, so exile is real. It's not just this theoretical concept as we might think of it looking back in history. For him, it was real. And for these people in Jerusalem, this was real. Um, exile was something that they dealt with every day. An invading force had come into Judah and defeated them and forcibly removed people from their homes, carrying, off, carrying them off to a distant pagan land. So just think, think of, you know, almost place yourself there of, of how this would be understood and, and uh, how prophecy then would be important to the people of, of Israel, the people of Judah, as they're away from, from uh, God's land there. So, and we're going to talk about all that. This is going to really play into that. So this, this is a genuine judgment on the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, and it was necessary. And so that's really what we're going to see play out in this first half of the book. Um, Jerusalem is going to be judged. And so uh, the first thing that we want to know and the first thing that Ezekiel kind of lays out is why. Why is it necessary 
that Jerusalem would be judged. Uh, and there are several reasons that we see here. And um, as we think about it, remember that this judgment uh, of the southern kingdom, it occurred over a period of several years. So as I said, beginning in 593, at that time, Jerusalem was still standing. So when Ezekiel and, and them got carried off into exile, Jerusalem was still there. The temple, <clears throat> excuse me, was still standing. And so in, in a sense, in a kind of a physical, material sense, Judah would have still had some hope because Jerusalem was still standing. Um, and as long as it's there, as long as the temple is standing, they would have some hope. But as we're going to see, uh, it's not going to stand. Part of what Ezekiel is going to be called to prophesy is that Jerusalem will not stand. <clears throat> so as you look at chapters 4 and 5, they're particularly all about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so the question then is why? Why did this have to happen? And I think we can see three really clear reasons that Jerusalem would have to be judged and destroyed and, and the, the people carried off into exile. Um, and so the, these three things, you can see them on your handout there. First of all, was Judah's hardness of heart. So if you look over in chapter 3, let me read starting in, in verse 4. <clears throat> and he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So, you know, here's God describing his people. Um, their, their foreheads are hard, their hearts are stubborn. <laughs> Most of us would, right? So, so they refuse to listen. Uh, and so this is not new, right? As we look back at the history of Israel, it goes all the way back to the Exodus. And as we were looking through that part of the Exodus and, and as they are out in the wilderness, what did they continue to do? They refused to listen. They, they grumbled. They complained. They, they uh, were not willing to listen and be obedient to God. And so here this is hundreds of years later, and that's still how God is characterizing his own people, that they have this hardness of heart and they refuse to listen. So there's one reason. Secondly, the wickedness of the southern kingdom mirroring the wickedness of the northern kingdom, which they've already been destroyed and taken off into exile uh, by Assyria. The southern kingdom is just like them. So if you turn over to chapter 8, let me just read this chapter and listen how blatantly God's own people um, are not willing to live according to His purposes and how they can only be described as wicked. <clears throat> so look at this in, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had a, an appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head 
And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So there was an idol there. The first thing Ezekiel sees when he's taken a vision to Jerusalem is an idol. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will still see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. I just think of that description. Here's a vision of the people of Israel and the elders of the people of Israel. Everybody is involved in idol worship, in rejecting, rebelling against the, world, the Lord, and just plain wickedness. And so the result is going to be God's judgment on there. So it's not only that the people's hearts were hard that we saw in chapter 3, but they even go hard after false gods and idols. And worshiping the sun. Yeah, uh, worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. We see there, as, as Romans 1 says. Well, then the third thing we see in Ezekiel is that Judah broke covenant. So all of this that we just described and we just read is a breaking of God's covenant. So if you think of the history between God and His chosen people, you know, there is a history of God making covenants with His people. So you can go back to Abraham when God initially called Abraham to come out of the land of Chaldeans, go to a place so God uh, gave him a covenant that would involve land, would, uh, would be a promise to make him a great nation. 
and a promise that Abraham uh, would bless all nations, be a blessing to all nations, that God would cause that to happen through him. So there was that covenant with Abraham. Then you think of the covenant God established with Moses. So he gave them the law. He gave them very specifically how they could worship and how they could be obedient to God. And so there were blessings and curses associated with that covenant. And then uh, God established a covenant with David about 400 years prior to Ezekiel's time. Um, And so this covenant, uh, it was something we'll we'll, uh, look a little bit into this a little more and see how it applies. But it's safe to say that uh, Israel or Judah has just, just broken every aspect of the covenants that God has made with them. And this, this is the pattern that has taken place. Um, but if we look specifically, let's look specifically at the covenant with, that God made with David. And there's some particular blessings here, I think, that, that really um, play into this. So turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That after Ezekiel That is before. So it's before Psalms, it's, it's kind of back in the, you know, uh, not too far after the first five books of the Bible. We get into the history there. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll give you a minute to turn there, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. And this is the covenant that God made with David. So just starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, just like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, um, This particular covenant, as we're looking back, so Ezekiel would have been looking back 400 years to the time that God made this covenant with David. And really, as we look at that, there's some particular blessings that are part of this covenant that would have been a joy to Israel, a blessing to Israel, and even a matter of national pride. So um, let's look at these three things, um, which are God's presence with His people, a particular place for his people, and an established kingdom. So if we think about this, um, God's presence with his people. In verse 9 there, um, again, he says, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So God promised that he has been with David and that he would continue to be with David wherever he went. And God was with Israel 
wherever he went. So the presence of God is an, a unique and particular blessing to the nation of Israel. Um, and so uh, if you think about it, before Solomon, got, uh, David's son, who would build the temple, God's presence was kind of symbolically with uh, Israel in the tabernacle. You remember the glory of the Lord coming down, filling the tabernacle, and he was with his people. And then when Solomon made the house, uh, constructed the temple, God's house, um, we could look back in, in 1 Kings 8, and we see again God's presence with Israel, the, his glory filling the temple that Solomon built. So God's presence with his people was a particularly important thing um, that God has promised in this covenant. Um, and then the place, second thing, particular place for his people. Again, uh, God's reiterated that this, uh, he will give them a land, just as he promised Abraham. In verse 10 there, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So again, the land was critical and, and important to Israel uh, and promised by God. And then thirdly, God says he will establish a kingdom. Uh, he is, and he promises to establish an eternal kingdom uh, with a king always on the throne. Verse, verse 12 there, he says, uh, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 as well, And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this idea of Israel being a kingdom, having a king on the throne forever, is this promise that God has given them. And so it's a joyous covenant with wonderful blessings, and Israel's identity was really kind of tied to these things. They were a set-apart nation by God um, in a specific place, the land of Israel, with a particular kingdom um, that God had established, and a unique relationship with the God of the, the universe. His presence was with them. Uh, and so these things are great. And so what a tragedy it is that Israel and Judah will lose all of this due to their wickedness, due to their rebellion against God and their hard hearts. So uh, as we think about that, all of this blessing that they had, and they rebel, they're, they're wicked, they're, they won't listen, is there any application for us in this? <laughs> sure, yeah. Sometimes we do that. Uh, we, re we ignore. Sometimes we have hard hearts, right? Hard-headedness. Anything else that you can think of? Yeah, so there's, there's a warning for us in this, is there not? Um, and really, if we think about it, um, Paul, Paul warned about this. So concerning the Exodus generation in particular, in 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn over there, but let me read um, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things, so he's talking, Paul's talking about the Exodus generation, those who saw all these blessings by God. He carried them out of um, Egypt and he says, 
now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You know, so What's that passage, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11, and then verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know, so there, there is, uh, we can say the same thing. You know, this was particular about the Exodus generation Paul's talking about. We can say, say the same thing about the exile generation. You know, they repeated the same sins. And so these things have been written down as a warning for us, for us to flee from idolatry and a, a return to the Lord if, if we've drifted. So all of this is really why Jerusalem is going to have to face judgment. Uh, and it's right, it's good, right? We, if we meditate on Judah's wickedness, the, as Ezekiel pro, uh, prophesies these things and prophesies of impending judgment, we must come to the conclusion that God is, is just in His judgment. You know, if, if Israel, if Judah is going to act like this, if they're going to rebel against Him, then God is right to bring judgment on them. They deserve to lose their land. They deserve to lose their kingdom, and they deserve to lose the presence of God in their midst. Yet, we see a remarkable thing as we continue to look through this book. God has gone with them into exile. Turn, turn back again to um, chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And looking there at verse 4. The book opens with, with a vision. Verse 4, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. And so that vision, it, it goes on, um, but it, we kind of get down towards the end of it. Look at verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So, think about that. You know, even though the people have gone into exile, even though they will lose all of the blessings of the covenant because of their wickedness, God still goes with him. His glory was seen by Ezekiel, who is in Babylon, right? He's not back in Israel. So, the glory of God is there. God will continue to be present with His people, even though they have re rebelled against Him. And then, 
he will continue to speak to them. Uh, so look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. So God has not abandoned his people. He has gone with him and he continues to speak to them. And why is that such a blessing? Why would it be a blessing that God would continue to speak to his people in their rebellion? Yeah, he's made great promises to us that he will fulfill. And the speaking in particular, why, why is that such a blessing? I mean, A, there's hope that it hasn't ended. Okay. Um, when you're still in speaking terms with someone that you've had a huge argument or break with, if you're still speaking with them, there's still hope that... It's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And I think in speaking, especially when you mentioned that the temple's gone, Ezekiel's not there in the temple, which is where God's presence was, which is where you would expect to hear him speak um, to you, that he's now gone with them into exile. Yeah. Speaking to him there. Yeah. Um, I think highlights God changing what it means for his presence to be with them. It's not located in a. So I can be located Right. Yeah. God's presence is not based on a physical location. Yeah. Yeah. And we desperately need to hear from the, from the Lord, right? We need his word. If God went silent, then we would all be in big trouble. Ju Judah, Israel would have been in really big trouble. But, uh, and without the word of the Lord, we perish, right? So, so even though Judah has rebelled and broken the covenant, deserving judgment, God will still pursue them with his word and particularly through his prophet. So that's what we're seeing here. So God goes with him, them into Israel, which was in, or into judgment, into Babylon, which is an incredible blessing. Um, nevertheless, they still will, we will face the results, the judgment of breaking covenant. So um, Ezekiel's called to bring this life-giving word to the people. The word is true. So it will clarify that judgment will be the result of breaking covenant. And this judgment's going to correspond to what we saw earlier. So uh, from the covenant that we noted earlier. So they will lose God's presence uh, dwelling with them. So turn to chapter 10. And listen, listen to uh, this, chapter 10. Then I look, verse 1, and behold... On the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, that is the temple, when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. 
And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And then skip down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So, so just as we saw uh, back in 1 Kings 8, the glory of the Lord filling the temple, coming down and filling the temple, now Ezekiel sees in this vision the glory of the Lord going up and leaving the temple. So there's this incredible picture here, uh, and it's to be mourned that the glory of the Lord, God's presence, is going to leave His people. Um, and so there's that, and then we know as well that they will lose their land, the particular place that they had, they will lose that as well. Um, and, we, and we'll get to that here in a second. The kingdom will also ex cease to exist, at least apparently, for the time being. The king gets carried off into exile as well, and there's, there will be no one sitting on the throne in Israel, so they've lost that. Um, they lose their land, um, and then this happens. And, and in particular, this uh, focus on Jerusalem, turn over to chapter 24. So as this first part of the, the prophecy comes to a close, First one in chapter 24. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Uh, so here it is. This is the day that uh, king of Babylon will come, will destroy Jerusalem, will destroy the temple, everything will seem to be lost. You know, the hope that, Jerusalem, or that, that they had in Jerusalem still standing will come to an end. And uh, so all of this takes place. Um, and so should any of this have, should it have surprised them in any way? Should it surprise us? No, I mean, this is exactly what we should expect. As a matter of fact, this was promised by God back in, in Deuteronomy um, chapter 28 <clears throat> says this, verse 15 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then in particular, over in verse 63 of that same chapter, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So, you know, even back in Moses' day, this was uh, proclaimed that if they would not be obedient to the covenant, then God would rip them out of the land and judge them and punish them. So they shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. And once again, we can't say anything except that God is just and that He is faithful and that He is consistent and fair in bringing His judgment on those who, who were wicked and deserved it. So really, up to this point in Ezekiel, we shouldn't be surprised at anything. You know, this is all kind of going according to plan. Um, God warned His people for generations that if they failed to keep His commands uh, and they acted wickedly, then He would bring judgment. 
And so what has happened? They have failed to keep his commands. They've acted wickedly. So now they're facing the judgment that he promised. But here's where things begin to get interesting in this last half of Ezekiel. Exile and separation from God is not where the story ends. You know, we would think maybe that should be the end. Justice has been served. Uh, the wicked people have gotten their, their due judgment. Uh, but what we see here is that there is still hope for God's people. And it is a hope of restoration uh, to be with God once again. And so this hope kind of starts with a little bit of a trickle, a little bit of a flicker in chapter 25. And the first thing we see is that God's going to turn his attention away from the judgment of Judah and command Ezekiel to pronounce judgment on the surrounding nations. Um, and so <clears throat> we see in chapters 25 through 35, Ezekiel uh, pronouncing God's judgment on those nations that surrounded Israel. So um, just here's an example of that. Look in chapter 25. Starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said aha over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. And I will cut off you from the peoples and I will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you, then you will know that I am the Lord. So uh, here's Ezekiel prophesying against the Ammonites. Then he will do the same thing uh, against the nations of Moab, Seir, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. So all these surrounding nations will uh, hear the prophecies of their impending judgment. And why do you think God does this? Why does he prophesy against? about judgment against all of these nations. And we kind of get the clue of, of why he's doing that there in those verses we read. So they will know he is the Lord, right? Because God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all the nations. So they will know that he is the Lord. What else? Yeah, he's upholding his justice. It is right. They, they are the, also those who rebel against the, the Lord and, and practice wickedness. So it's just. And what's it say there in verse 6 of chapter 25? Oh, no. Rejoice with all malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Yeah, so... Do you hear that hint there? 
<clears throat> do you hear that hint of God's love for Israel? It still remains. So that all these nations gloated over uh, Israel's destruction. And so God says, because you gloated, because you set yourself up as more superior to them, I will bring judgment on you. Um, and so there's this little hint here, I think, that uh, God still loves his people, his chosen people. So, and then we see that as, as the book progresses. Um, Judah really is in the same situation as all those other nations. If you think about, um, there's no hope for the nations who rebel against the Lord. But for God's people, things will be a little bit different. Um, they, even though they deserved God's judgment, even though everything that he did in carrying them out into exile was just, um, it will still be a little bit different for Israel because they are God's people. So instead of leaving them in exile, um, God is going to act on their behalf. And that's what we're going to see here in a minute. So uh, for all the other nations, they will be judged according to what they deserved. Israel was judged according to what they deserved as well. But now we're going to see God acting on their behalf. And why is that important? Why is it important that God would act on behalf of Israel? Because they're his, his people. Okay, so they're his people. Yeah, yeah. So he's the one. So it's a commentary on God's character, right? He's not going to abandon his people. Yeah, and he's the one who can do it, right? Yeah. If there's going to be any hope for God's people, it's going to require God acting on their behalf. They've already done everything they could do. Nobody else can. Yeah, nobody else can do anything uh, on their behalf, right? Bring in nation after nation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so here's what we're going to see: the Lord acting on um, Judah's behalf. And turn over to chapter 36 and listen to this. Hear the distinction here between. Judah, who deserved it, just like all the other nations, and um, what God says about them. Look at verse 6 in chapter 36. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful." And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and, you will, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So what a distinction uh, between how the nations will know that, the, that, the, that God is the Lord and how now Israel and how Judah will know that he is the Lord because he's going to do all of these things on their behalf. And, and as we said, it, it depends completely on God to make this happen. They couldn't do it. 
Uh, and so really now we're going to see two specific ways that God is going to act on behalf of Israel. And those two ways are he's going to give them a new heart and he's going to give them a new spirit. So look there in verse 22 of um, Ezekiel 36. I'll read down through verse 26. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Is it not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came? And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Let's stop right there. God is going to give them a new heart. And again, why, why is that important? What kind of heart do they currently have, according to what we already read? Yeah, they have a, hard, a heart of stone. It's impenetrable. Um, but God is going to take that heart away from them, remove their heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh, a heart that is uh, soft and open to hearing and believing God. And this is the same thing that you know, Mike uh, showed us in Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. Back in Jeremiah 31, uh, there's a new covenant involved, right? 31:31 um, 31, 31 of Je- Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God, again, He's going to transform the people's heart from stone to flesh. He was, he's going to write His law onto their heart. Uh, and this is what they need. They, they could do nothing about their own hearts. They couldn't remove their heart of flesh. They couldn't give themselves a heart of stone. They couldn't give themselves a heart of flesh. Uh, and again, this is the reason that the old covenant failed, because the people had hearts of stone and they were not able to keep it. And so now God promises this new covenant uh, that they will be able to keep because He's going to change their hearts. And this really points us forward to Christ, right? The new covenant is centered on the person and the work of Christ. And so again, when we uh, just jumping forward, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, which um, Lord willing, we'll hear Brad preach in a few weeks from now. Um, But uh, chapter 5, verses 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So all of this that we're talking about in Ezekiel, this hope of being reconciled to God through this new covenant, um, it depends on God making the old new, replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, making uh, us a new creation in Christ 
the old having passed away. So that's critical, a new heart that God will, that will, he will give his people. And then secondly, he will give them a new spirit as well. And we see that back in Ezekiel 36, the next verse, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. So God's going to give them a new spirit. And what does he say about that spirit? He says, I will put my spirit into you. So the new spirit that God promises to give his people is actually his spirit that he will put within his people. And chapter 37 of Ezekiel really illustrates this very graphically. So um, uh, Ezekiel sees another vision in chapter 37. And let me, let me just read through that real quickly. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Now that word breath there is actually the same word as spirit. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live." and I will place you in your own land. Then you, sh you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord." So here we see you know, that the God is going to have Ezekiel prophesy to a bunch of dead, dry bones. And he says, this is, this is Israel. So here's a picture of my people. They're all dead. They're, they're dry bones. They've been dead for a long time. And then when he prophesies, his his word into them, um, the word does its work. He puts his spirit in them, they, they come to life. Um, and so we don't want to miss the picture. You know, they were described as dead. Verse 12 there, he says, um, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. So uh, this is a clear picture of dead people being brought to life. And, um, you know, they had no hope, right? Who has less hope than dead people? You know, but uh, in God, He has brought them to life. He has acted on their behalf. He's done what they couldn't do, and He has raised them from the dead. And is that still the case 
for God's people today. Is this this illustration have anything to do with us? Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Well, even before that, I mean, listen what Paul says. Listen, listen what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. See, see if you can hear the similarities here between what we just read in Ezekiel thirty-seven and what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. He says, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air." the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, that's until we accept Christ as our Savior. Yeah, that's, that's what he's describing there. So yeah, yeah. before that, we're dead. You know, we're just like Israel. We're just all dead people, dead in our sins, yeah. dead in our transgressions. And God does a supernatural work in our lives. He raises us from the dead. Um, and so we, we see this picture here in Ezekiel. God raises His people from the dead. And that's the same thing that He does to us. And this is what God has always done to make a people for Himself, right? He's taken dead people and He's brought them to life by putting His Spirit into them. But that was only last week, wasn't it? No, we were all dead. We're, oh, yeah, okay, okay. We're dead in our you're sins, not, right? You're not talking literal, okay? Well... Spiritual, yes. We're spiritually dead. Yeah, and he brings us to life, yes. Um, So, uh, there's this parallel between God's people of Ezekiel's day and and us as well today, and God working consistently to make for himself a people. Well, um, let's let's wrap up. Ezekiel concludes with one final vision in, in chapters 40 to 48, and it's a vision of a new temple. Um, and this vision is very detailed in its description of this temple. It's very detailed in the layout of the temple. It goes on for eight chapters, kind of showing this and, and the dimensions. And it's been subject to a lot of different interpretations. Uh, but rather than get bogged down in all of what those details mean, let's just think back to what the temple pictures. So think about, you know, we've touched on the temple already in Ezekiel, and it's The temple is a visible reference to God dwelling with His people, right? The temple is where where God, uh, His presence was visibly, they were able to see that and know that God was with them. And so that's what the people lost due to their wickedness. The temple was destroyed. God's Spirit left His uh, presence and His glory left the temple. And so they were without God. Um, And symbolically, the destruction of the temple showed that. So... Ezekiel here is given this final vision of a restored temple, of of a new temple. And so the point of this temple vision is the certain hope that God will once again dwell with His people. There will be a temple, meaning God will once again dwell with His people. And look there in chapter 43. I think that's 
It's pretty clearly um, laid out there. Verse 1, he says, Then he led me to the gate, uh, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So God's promise here is that He will return to dwell with His people. He's not going to, to leave them alone. And then listen to what He says here in verse 6. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places. You know, so you hear that forever language, that promise of God being with His people forever. Um, you know, our hope, just as Israel's hope, was being a people made clean to be in God's presence for eternity. So really, that's kind of Ezekiel in a, in a fast one-hour nutshell. Uh, and so we can sum it up uh, by saying this. Uh, the people's rebellion and wickedness brought real consequences, right? We saw that. They lost their land. They lost their kingdom. They lost God's presence. They wound up in exile with a shattered covenant. But God remains faithful. And He even goes with His people into exile, continuing to speak to them. And then ultimately, He initiates a new covenant where He gives His people a new heart and a new spirit and restores them into His presence forever. Um, and so we know this will ultimately be fulfilled through our King Jesus, our eternal King. So all we can do, I think, when we look at this is just praise God for His grace and mercy. You know, we do not deserve it. So any, any questions, any thoughts on that? It's a lot. Yeah. This yeah. is a promise. This is a, a truth. Not just a hope, but yeah. a truth. The hope that we have as the people of God is is certain. Yeah. You know, we don't have realistic yeah. truth. I mean, exactly. certain truth, yeah. A certain truth. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we do praise you that you have given us the hope that we have of, of being with you eternally, your presence with us. Um, every uh, promise that you've made being fulfilled in Christ. And, and as we are in Christ, Lord, we are new creations, and we praise you for that. We pray that uh, we would live accordingly, that we would find great joy in loving you and knowing you and building one another up. And so we pray now, even as we go and hear your word preached, that you would do a good work in our heart. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.